You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're very pleased to welcome a new sponsor to SpyCast, Blue Apron, a company whose mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Welcome, Blue Apron, to the SpyCast family. We're joined today by Dr. Tara Maller, who's a spokesperson and senior policy advisor for the Counter-Extremism Project. She's also a research fellow in the International Security Program at New America, where she writes and speaks on areas related to sanctions, diplomacy, intelligence, cybersecurity, terrorism, Iraq, women in security, and national service. Previously, she was the director of strategic communications for the Service Year Alliance, a joint venture of the Aspen Institute and Be the Change. Prior to the creation of the joint venture, she served as Associate Director for Strategic Communications for the Franklin Project at the Aspen Institute. In 2011, she received her PhD in political science at MIT, where her dissertation focused on information collection, diplomacy, and sanctions. During this time, she was an affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, and she served as a research fellow in the International Security Program at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Previously, Tara worked as a military analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, focusing on the Iraqi insurgency. Tara has public articles in the Washington Quarterly, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, and PS Political Science and Politics. She's recently published articles for foreignpolicy.com, cnn.com, blogsofwar.com, Bloomberg Review, Al Jazeera America, Vox Media, and the Huffington Post. She's appeared as a commentator on Bloomberg, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Al Jazeera America, and HuffPost Live. You can follow her on Twitter, at Tara Mahler. So you've been busy. So we take, thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. So first question I want to ask is, how did you get into this work? I, many people can point to a benchmark moment in their lives where they knew what I wanted to do. For me, it was a campy TV movie I saw when I was seven years old about nuclear weapons. For many others, it was something like 9-11 that, that really kind of guided their future path. What led you to CIA? And how did you start focusing on counter-extremism policy? Well, you almost stole my thunder a little bit with the question because I was going to actually answer with the pivotal moment was 9-11. I mean, I was in college when 9-11 happened. I was already a government major at the time, but I was actually focused on American politics, domestic politics, did my internships on Capitol Hill. And then when 9-11 happened, I decided um, 
I should probably take some international relations courses, some security courses, which I did. And I did an internship post 9-11 in October of 2001 at the Dartmouth Security Studies Institute. Um, and then thought I was going to law school and CIA came to campus doing some recruitment my senior year, ended up at a recruitment session. And about a year later, uh, I basically did the same thing at my master's program and ended up taking a job with them as a military analyst working on the Iraq insurgency. But it was really 9-11 that sort of shifted my focus and gave me uh, more of a desire to focus on the global aspects of security as opposed to domestic politics, which was where I was interested originally. Was your academic background at Dartmouth in Middle East studies, or did you learn a lot of that at CIA? No, it actually wasn't. I had spent most of my time doing American politics, and then I switched focus to international relations. I had taken some, I don't want to say zero, I had taken a Middle East course there. A lot of it that I took was on military analysis, uh, security studies, so security, but more of a general security uh, academic curriculum, not really a regional focus. I did not have a preference as to where I was put. It was just that at the time, most analysts being hired were put into high priority accounts. Right. And clearly when I started there in 2004, the high priority account was Iraq. So a lot of people look at ISIS as this new problem. Uh, have you been looking at them since they were Al-Qaeda Iraq? I mean, is this something that uh, I mean, you can certainly disabuse people of this idea that ISIS is some kind of a new organization. Is this, is this an organization that you've been studying even before their transformation to so-called Islamic State? Sure. So, I mean, it's a complex question. So ISIS itself, the organization, was not on the radar, obviously, at the time that I worked on Iraq. Um, having said that, many terrorist groups and insurgencies evolve over time. Individuals can shift allegiances to different groups. And, you know, the genesis of ISIS, many of the individuals, you know, may have come from other affiliated groups at the time. But, um, I, I mean, I don't want to say that it would be a complete surprise that we see the activities that we see now originating out of Iraq and Syria. Um, but no, ISIS itself, at the time that I worked on Iraq, there was no ISIS. Right. It wasn't in existence. Al-Qaeda in Iraq um, you know, was one of the main insurgent you know, terrorist organizations at the time that we focused on, um, particularly where I was focused looking at as an analyst, which was the Baghdad area. Um, so again, not completely new in that it didn't come out of nowhere with no historical legacy in the region, but the, the way we see the organization now is, is a fairly new organization, uh, historically looking back. And I'd argue that a lot of what we're seeing them do is actually, um, quite distinct and, and in some ways more troublesome than all terrorism is troublesome, but in some ways right. more troublesome than other organizations, particularly, um, their use of violence and the way they, uh, sort of use that in a glorified fashion, and then also their use of technology and online media. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. I mean, a lot of what's happening on the news is showing our military struggle against ISIS or our intelligence struggle in ISIS, but really the fight has moved at least partially to a new arena, and that's what you just mentioned, the online arena. And from the Orlando attack, which we'll focus in a little bit later, let's get more general now, but many ISIS fighters in the past, whether they're sympathizers, recruits, recruiters themselves, or lone wolves, have, have a, something in common. They, they've been radicalized online, or this is where they were first exposed to extremist content via online channels. So it's not like, you know, you talked about your recruitment to CIA. It's not like there's a physical person walking up to them saying, hey, join this organization. They're almost self-radicalizing. They're, they're looking online. So it's, it's difficult to stop this, obviously. You got Twitter, you got YouTube, you got other platforms. How, how in the world 
can we stop this? I mean, we can blast them into their component atoms with bombs and bullets, but why is it so critical that we deal with them in this battle space as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you walk through sort of a few different areas there. I mean, when I think about people who are radicalized, whether that's core fighters in Iraq and Syria, or whether that's the fringe lone wolf that's only had contact online, um, at the end of the day, you still need to fight the battle in sort of I like to think of it as in three realms, and the last one being the information realm, the first one being the military space, degrading their capabilities, taking back territory. Uh, that's where sort of face-to-face -face recruitment is happening. That's where people are being, you know, in communities like Raqqa, fear and intimidation and have no choice but to be sympathetic or join or have allegiance to the cause or be killed or try to escape. Um, so that's one dimension, the military dimension. The second, the other one is the information dimension, which I said. And then the third in terms of prevention and, and fighting this battle isn't really so much fighting the battle, but it's the defense. It's the homeland security. Mm -hmm. It's the resources to the FBI and the intelligence community. So the way I see it is you really need to be working across all three of those areas. So airstrikes and all those things that we see happening overseas, that's the military component. FBI investigations, intelligence community resources, being able to connect the dots, that's sort of the homeland security. But the online space is actually what I think is different than previous conflicts. It's the area that's been particularly difficult to battle. It's been the area that um, ISIS has been better than other organizations at. And my organization, Counter Extremism Project, it's one of the areas because of that that we've been so focused on. So it's trying to take the fight to where the ideology is and where the ideology meets the technology. Right. So trying to undermine their, me their messaging um, through digital disruption campaigns online uh, and through pressuring you know, technology companies to take down content and to you know working the government works very hard at this, counter, counter narratives, counter messages, uh, working with local partners to try to undermine some of their messaging in the areas where they're being successful at recruitment. So this is not the first time that, that terrorists have used online content. I, I mean, I think of Al-Qaeda uh, in the Arabian Peninsula and Inspire magazine, which was the root cause of the Zernayev brothers and, and other attacks here in the United States. Why has ISIS use of social media been so much more significant? Why is it distinct and unique from what AQAP has done in the past or other organizations? Sure. So it, your question actually reminds me to point out one of the books that I think does a really good job of outlining why what ISIS is doing is different and the ways that it's different is The Rise of ISIS by J.M. Berger and Jessica Stern. And in it, they really, so this is not my argument, but I buy the argument. Mm. There's sort of two distinct factors. One is just the general level and scope and proliferation of the amount of content that they've been able to get out there. And part of that is just that we use social media more these days. When I was you know, working in Iraq back in 2004, I don't remember Twitter being as much of a conversation right. back then, to be honest. Um, so now they have you know, more platforms to operate on, more technologies, and more users are on those technologies. And they've been really good about using everything from bots and algorithms and all of these things, not necessarily highly sophisticated, but they've made a concerted effort to do that. So one is the scope. And the second point that, again, the book makes, which I, I think is completely true and won't come as a surprise, is that they've been extremely proactive in terms of taking their messages of violence and taking their gruesome content, whether that's a beheading video, and they are projecting that. They're not hiding from it. Usually in the past, whether you're talking about um, certain violent regimes or you're talking about groups, a lot of times, sometimes there's a denial of the violence or right. an attempt to cover it up. And then there's a debate that goes on with journalists or NGOs about what's actually going on. Is genocide happening or not? Right. Is this type of violent activity happening or not? But ISIS isn't 
sort of walking away from their violence, they're embracing it, and they're actually using it to recruit. So I think it's sort of the combination of those two things that have been particularly uh, different about what, what they've done online. I mean, we, we've seen at least, uh, we're only a couple days removed from Orlando, but we, it appears as though uh, he was recruited online or, or radicalized online. Beyond this, I mean, can we point to tangible impact? I mean, can we say this is having a real is a real game-changing technology that we can say there's empirical proof, not just it seems to be working, or I, I think back, not to get into politics, which we're not going to do, the original idea that Trump was uh, recruiting people for ISIS just by his statements, at the time that was first said, there was no empirical proof whatsoever of that. Now there is, right? So are we in the same position now where we can point to, yes, we know this person, this person, maybe not the specifics, but we know there are groups, we know there are people empirically that have been recruited online use of social media? Sure. I'll start by saying, obviously, we know that in areas like Syria and Iraq, there's a lot going on face-to-face and in social networks mm-hmm. and cells where physical communication right. and actually knowing individuals in these groups are happening in traditional ways. Having said that, yeah, I do think there's empirical evidence. I mean, if you look at individuals, whether we're talking about a lone wolf in the Orlando case or whether we're talking about individuals who have been arrested or plots that have been thwarted, and you look historically at their at the investigations you see evidence that they were viewing content mm-hmm. and or m- creating their own content that was inflammatory gruesome graphic violent in nature um, and i think you've seen this with for example one p- key example like Anwar al-Waki videos which are used um, time and time again to radicalize individuals as they view these videos and these messages so i think i mean y- can you prove Nothing, I always say nothing when it comes to terrorism or whether it comes to a mass shooting or whether it comes to any sort of horrific act of violence, it's usually never going to be monocausal. It's not going to be that one video online set the person over the edge or just videos online were what did it. But is it one part of the equation? Absolutely. I mean, it's one common theme we see across all these cases. None of these individuals have never been exposed to this content. So it's not to say that this content alone is the right. trigger, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it, it is definitely part of the narrative of what's driving or what's helping to radicalize individuals. In, in March of this year, President Obama signed an executive order establishing something called the Global Engagement Center, the GEC. Uh, this is something that your group works with specifically. So can you tell us a little bit about what the GEC does? So we haven't worked with them yet because they're fairly new, okay. um, but they are a new office set up by the Obama administration. It's an interagency office. And it's designed to basically work on many of the issues that we work on, but from the government side of the equation. So counter narratives, um, you know, analyzing success and failure on these things. They're very new. They were just set up. Uh, They were sort of built in response to criticism that we have not been doing a good job. They are a fusion office, so they draw on all parts of the government. And actually, we'll be doing a panel discussion with them to highlight some of their work, um, uh, counter extremism project, along with uh, GEC. Uh, in Washington on July 7th at New America in downtown D.C., so that's open to the public. Um, And that's going to talk about ISIS and the information space and the work that the GEC is doing and the work that Counter Extremism Project is doing. What what is the value of, I mean, I think this is probably an obvious answer, but let's talk about it, the value of this kind of government, non-government partnership about, you know, is there a need for it? I think I know the answer to that too, but we'll, again, we'll let you lay that out. I mean, why is it so important that NGOs 
think tanks, groups like yours are working with the government, State Department, but also outside the State Department, talking about intelligence community, talking about the military as well. Sure. So I think it's always been important, but I'd argue that it's probably more important now in this particular fight than it has been in the past. I mean, there are probably many security issues over the course of history where you want the nonprofit sector, the private sector, and the government working together. But when you're talking about traditional military fights, it's probably less essential than the types of fights we're seeing now against terrorist organizations. So why, I mean, why is it important now? Uh, one reason being the United States, while we may have great military capabilities and resources, while we may have great resources in our diplomatic uh, centers and agencies like the State Department, at the end of the day, those agencies are comprised of Americans. So if we, part of this battle is fighting ideas and part of this battle is fighting rhetoric and part of this battle is having a message that resonates with the populations who are joining these causes, then we need local partnerships. Uh, nonprofits are very good partners for that sort of effort internationally. And to be honest, with the technology side of the equation, you need private companies because if we're going to be able to undermine their message, most of their messaging is happening online. Right. So by the very definition of the mechanism that they're using for their messaging, they're using it on private companies' platforms. So without the cooperation of the private sector, the U.S. government really does, with, even with its best efforts, have its hands tied. Um, and I think you have seen the tech companies stepping up and, and taking some action, but our organization thinks there's still a lot more that can be done in terms of the removal of extremist content, the most graphic, brutal, horrific content online off the platforms. I, this really kind of reminds me of the, the concept of the fact that Al-Qaeda, like for 9-11, for example, appropriated American technology, appropriated Western technology and, you know, using aircraft. They didn't build their own air force. They didn't build their own bombs. They took our technology and used it against us. That's similar, I see, to what's happening here online, where I, ISIS is using Twitter. They're using Facebook. They're using YouTube. These are, These are companies and, and, and technologies that were built by the West, by Americans, and are using them against us. So exactly, I'm thinking what you're saying is these are the companies that actually need to be a partnership here. Exactly. And one of the areas, as I mentioned, that we're focused on has been digital disruption. Um, on Counter Extremism Project's website, which is counterextremism.com, we have a whole section devoted to digital disruption and sort of the types of measures we'd like to see taken by the tech companies, as well as the measures they have taken to date. I mean, Twitter has removed content online as it's flagged, but they rely on a very manual reporting system. Uh, so there's still a lot of content up there that violates their terms of service. And you know, companies like Facebook are responsive. For example, we saw them respond taking down accounts a after Orlando, but there's also still a lot of content up on many of these sites that violate their own terms of service. So actually one of the new areas uh, that CEP recently just announced um, with regards to this issue is a technological solution to this new technology that the counter extremism project in conjunction with uh, the computer science chair Hanif Farid at Dartmouth College is developing new technology that can essentially take this content down automatically with the cooperation of the private tech companies in a way that has been done and is still being done for child pornography. Right. And it's the same individual who worked on developing the technology who's involved with our project to develop this new technology. And we think this is really the solution that the government, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector have all been looking for. Because everybody says there's so much up there, it's too hard to get down, and it's a constant battle. Well, now we have the answer because we have technology that can do it. I'm an ex-combat arms guy. I talk about hearts and minds is the great place to shoot somebody. 
Um, so you'll need to explain to me a little bit on how this is just as important as the shooting war against ISIS. I, I get probably a little bit of softball question. It sounds uh, like I, I'm, I'm pushing back, but I'm not. I, I think I, I believe you. But for our listeners, lay out how, and we talked about at the very beginning, how this three-pronged approach, whether it's, it's foreign policy and the military approach, whether it is the law enforcement angle and the online angle, how is this going to make as big of a difference as we're, we're thinking it's going to? Well, I don't think it's more important, but I think it's complementary to okay. in the sense that if you take back territory or kill leaders, that's helpful and that's necessary, but it's not alone going to be sufficient because, first of all, if you're recruiting at a higher rate than the amount of kills, you're not going to see the numbers drop in terms of the organization. And to be honest, we saw this in Iraq where we degraded the capabilities of certain groups, and what do you know, they were able to rebuild them back or they were able to recruit new members. So the numbers, even though you had high kill rates, I mean, it's always good to have multiple metrics. You can't just go by sort of number of fighters killed because right. there's lots of other parts of the equation. We tried that in Vietnam. It didn't exactly. Work out body well. counts yeah. in Vietnam yeah. we learned to be problematic. So I'd argue in a similar fashion to the body count problem in Vietnam of just relying on that as your metric, you need to look at a holistic set of metrics. And if we just look at territory, I'm not saying these aren't important. They're very mm. important. But you don't want to just look at territory taken back. And you don't want to just look at leaders killed because if you do or fighters killed because if they're regenerating at a higher rate or if you're actually aggravating other people in other parts of the world more right. you might actually have a new problem on your hands so those things are all important but in conjunction with it you really need to get at the root source of the problem and my organization isn't sort of ignoring the rest of that if you we have a global extremist registry of extremist leaders online which is a great resource for the public which basically shows you what these leaders are doing and the ones that we've killed and, and the ramifications of that. And we also do reports on a number of other topics. It's not just about the online battle space. But we really do think that part of this fight is the ideological fight and is the information fight. And until we start making more progress on that, we can be in an endless war right. killing ISIS fighters. But if you don't prevent new ISIS fighters from being formed then you're going to be in a really, really long fight. Well, and it seems, and this may be oversimplification, but it seems like the military solution, even the law enforcement solution, is, is attacking the symptoms of the disease, where going after the ideology and preventing new recruiting is actually fighting the disease itself, the disease of radical Islam, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, we can debate that all day mm -hmm. long. But the idea is uh, getting at the root causes may prevent some of this needing to blow the hell out of somebody later on. Absolutely. And I'd add to that, I mean, this week more so than ever, the ideology can spread beyond the borders of the fight. So even if we are successful, even if you picture the most successful optimistic outcome that one might ever want to have in either Iraq or in Syria, of which I'm not sure that that's happening in, 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 the, in the near future, but even if that were to happen, it doesn't mean that the ideology may not have spread or may not be adopted by individuals like individuals in the United States, or to be frank, Europe has a much bigger problem on their hands in terms of foreign fighters leaving and coming back and, and sympathies with these ideologies. So I'd say the problem's actually worse in Europe than here, um, but a lot of that is the ideological spread that has sort of hit elements of the population in certain countries. I wanna move on to talk about some of the challenges that you may run into, but first, let me take a quick two minute break to tell you about Blue Apron. Uh, this is a company that delivers fresh ingredients to your front door in the hope of building a community of home chefs. I can't begin to overstate, to give you a little bit of background, how bad at cooking I was before Blue Apron. 
I literally set fire to a stove once cooking spaghetti. And that's spaghetti, the one dish a seven-year-old could pull off. I'm pretty terrible cook still, but I can make real meals with fresh ingredients that actually taste good and don't set the house on fire. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. Seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef is raised humanely. Chickens are free-range. Pork is raised naturally. And regenerative farming practices are used for produce. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they're reducing food waste. And I can't emphasize this point enough. My, my household is just two people. It makes no sense to go to the store and buy a ton of food that's going to eventually go to waste. Don't need a package of carrots. I just need one carrot if I'm making something with carrots. I don't always make something with carrots. But Blue Apron got me to start thinking about eating things that were green that weren't Skittles. So I have to give them credit for that. But Blue Apron gives you just what you need. And the meals come with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card with pictures. I can't emphasize that enough also. Pictures. I actually know what diced looks like now and minced and... Don't ask me to replicate it, but I have pictures to tell me. And the pre-portioned ingredients can be prepared into a great meal in 40 minutes or less. So don't take my word for it. Check out this week's menu and get two free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. I'm talking free food, people. Blueapron.com spycast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And again, there's not a hell of a lot of way to do a great segue back into talking about radical Islam uh, or whatever you want to call it from talking about Blue Apron. So we're just going to jump right back into the questions. Um, and I was thinking a lot about when you were talking how about some of the challenges that you guys might face. It seems potentially like a no-brainer, but there are some kind of intrinsic potential problems that you might run into. First, the idea of free speech issues. You know, you're, you're uh, the 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 challenge is you look at some of these uh, technology versus privacy issues, technology versus free speech issues that have been popping up in the last couple of years, whether it's uh, with Google and Twitter and working uh, with the government under uh, you know, the Snowden revelations and, and working with them with the NSA to the idea of, you know, all of a sudden you have a private company regulating what we can say openly on social media. So what have been some of the biggest challenges to date when in developing some of this technology and some of these partnerships and trying to stop this extremist viewpoint from being let out? Sure. So the way we see it isn't so much as a free speech issue because the technology companies themselves already have user terms of service that when you or I sign up with Facebook or sign up with Twitter or sign up with Instagram, we are agreeing that if we want to operate on these platforms, and operating on those platforms is not a constitutional right, although free speech may be, that we want to be part of an online community and that we are subscribing to their terms. Their terms already place restrictions on freedom of speech. Their terms already say that you cannot put child pornographic images on your Twitter account or you will be, the, the images or your whole account will be taken down. Their terms already say that you cannot make violent threats against another individual on your account or your account, if reported, can be taken down. So they already, and I just mentioned two examples. Mm. I think on some of these terms of service, I don't have them memorized, but I do have them compiled somewhere <laughs> on my computer in an email, have six or seven or eight categories right. of areas that violate their community standards. So my organization and me personally, it's not a freedom of speech issue. It's a terms of service issue. And 
our position has been that one of the responses by the companies is that, yeah, there's still some content that violates our terms that are, that's online, and we're doing the best we can. We're taking things down as they're reported, and that's awesome. They've taken a lot down. Twitter took, has taken down a lot of accounts that have been affiliated with extremist groups. But our organization thinks that having a technological solution, which can do this in a more automated algorithmic fashion, can take down a lot more and basically help them enforce their own terms of service that they've already created, not violate on anyone's free speech, just to have them do a better job removing the content that they already agree violates their terms of service in the first place. So this hasn't, this hasn't really been an ideological question. It's been a technological question. And until very recently, and arguably today, there wasn't the technological capability of doing this effectively. Exactly. And I mean, I can, you know, send you some more information on the specifics of this, but basically it's exactly taking the same technology that the tech companies all already are using to eliminate child pornography. And it's literally taking the same sort of lessons learned from that. And it's the same actual individual who worked on that is working on this new project with right. us, Hani Freed up at Dartmouth College. And it's basically taking that technology and applying it to the most graphic, brutal, horrific extremist content. And again, it's going to require partnerships and the companies to get on board. So this is in the very earliest stages, but this is something that our organization is pushing and we think that the technology companies should be adopting in the same way they were pushed to adopt uh, this technology filter on their content for child pornography. So this is, this is an intelligence podcast. So uh, I know there are listeners out there, I can hear them screaming at the, the, their iPad or their iPod. I don't even know if they're iPods anymore. They're iPhones through the ether yelling about what about the open source challenge? What about the ability of intelligence agencies to glean important information from these social media posts that are going to be taken down? Everything from geotags and pictures to less than brilliant terrorists who like to say a lot about what they're doing and where they're going and who they're going after online. What it seems like there's a trade-off here. Uh, preventing this information from going up may be problematic, maybe, maybe not, but seems like it might be problematic in the long run for open source. What, what is the response to that? Yeah, I mean, all of these decisions are always going to be somewhat of a trade-off. And again, before Twitter and Facebook, there's still a lot of open source content out there. And by taking down the most gr uh, gruesome, graphic, violent, inciting violence, it doesn't mean that you're completely shutting off your sort of realm of open source information. <laughs> the internet is a pretty big place, and individuals are still going to be using online channels to communicate. They're still going to probably be putting out information that's more benign in nature. It's just that the most horrific, violent, inciting graphic imagery is going to be taken down since this is essentially an, an image-focused right. technology. So I don't think that, A, I don't think that you're sort of losing all of the open source intelligence on these actors. And B, I, I'd argue, I mean, everything is a trade-off. And if at the end of the day, you might lose some open source, open source is one part of a, a a wide array of intelligence sources from human intelligence to signals intelligence, imagery intelligence. I mean, there's a lot of intelligence that's used to assess and fight terrorism. So just like uh, another good analogy or an example, you know, you put an individual on the terror watch list, they might not know they're on the terror watch list. If they go to fly, they might be tipped off when they can't fly, that they're under watch by somebody or that something has put them on law enforcement's radar. Now, that's a trade-off decision we make because we don't want the individual to get on the airplane. Right, it's better than them getting on the plane. So, right, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, you might be losing something. There's every security decision you might be sort of making some sort of balance calculation, um, but we almost sort of paralyze ourselves against taking action on terrorism if every, every sort of, you know, 
beneficial action might have a, a, a an effect on, in the intelligence space. Well, and, and that really, uh, to me, the broader answer to that question perhaps might be the, the social media people, the people who are posting on social media have already been radicalized. They are killing them off is fine, but then you're really just still attacking the symptoms. If you can right. prevent new people from being recruited, right. then we're actually going after the disease. Exactly. So, a lot of people have this question, and I, I think there's a really interesting debate about it, about it, about the fact that it's difficult enough to measure military successes in an asymmetrical war. You're not taking territory and forcing country to surrender, you know, so how do we understand how to win? In this case, how do we measure success and failure online? It may be even more of a uh, kind of a nebulous battle space than even an asymmetrical fight against terrorism. Yeah, that's a really, really good question and one that I'm also really interested in. I can give a few thoughts. I know this was actually one of the questions that uh, when I was talking to the Global Engagement Center at State, uh, they emphasized that one of the areas that they're really focused on is data analytics and trying to measure success and failure. And I'll be curious to hear their, what they're doing on the panel in July when I speak with them. But I, I mean, I can offer a few thoughts. Uh, one, you need to have robust measures that go look at metrics across the board. So you can think of some basic ones off the top of your head. I mean, Twitter, these companies release sort of content that comes down and they release numbers and they release content that's turned over to law enforcement and investigations. So you can sort of see if you're making a dent, not just in what's being taken down by new technology, but you can see if there's less that was ever gonna be going up in the first place. So that would be sort of one direct measure. And then a lot of this is gonna be looking to be honest, to the regions themselves, you can do, again, I'm just sort of hypothesizing here, you can do polling about opinion, you can do opinion polling, mm -hmm. you can do opinion polling in war zones, actually. Um, I remember when I worked on Iraq, open source polls, many of them done are in regions of Iraq, looking at the Sunni population in this district or the Shia population in this, and, and what they thought about basic fundamental things, both their ideology, views on the American government, things of that sort. Um, and then you can, do something more longer term, which is probably really at the heart of all this, is these things are going to take time. So you want to look in five, ten years from now how attitudes have shifted. Mm -hmm. And some of this is you know, going to be generational. It's going to be changing the minds of teenagers and children um, and, and tracking some of this over time and seeing whether or not uh, the I ideology is changing and seeing whether or not these groups aren't able to recruit at the levels they're recruiting now. So recruiting numbers too. Right. And I mean, these are all things that are very, I'm not trying to downplay how difficult these are. They're difficult, just as measuring success and failure in traditional military conflict right. is not as simple as measuring casualties or, or measuring, you know, how many individuals have been killed or we've killed. So there's not one silver bullet answer, but I think there are metrics that can be devised. And I'm sure there are metrics people within the government yeah. and within the private sector that can probably give you a, a larger set than I just sort of set forth. But I think it's you want to have a few different metrics and you want to be both short term and long term. As this gets more and more complicated, which it clearly has, uh, you know, you can't just lay out to the American public. Yes, we just took this town. We're moving forward. And, and there's a lot of misunderstanding of the fight against ISIS. There are a lot of people saying, you know, ISIS is winning. They're on the march. And in reality, ISIS is really being hammered hard. Uh, and retreating a lot of places. The Iraqi military seems to be getting their act together a little bit. And in many ways, some of the attacks are more desperation attacks than anything else. You're the spokesperson for your organization. How do you convey these ideas to the American people who, as things get more and more complicated, do they just tune out? Do they, do they not understand? Because again, it's hard enough to argue, let's wait 10 years to find out whether or not what we're doing makes sense. 
you know, forget the election coming up, just in a general sense, getting keeping the American public behind you. Uh, is that a, a kind of a key component behind what your job title demands? Sure. So I think one of the, I guess, positive and negatives about talking to people about foreign policy is, A, people don't necessarily know as much about foreign policy issues in as great of detail as they do about their opinions on domestic policy issues. Having said that, all the studies show that people are more malleable on foreign policy. Your views that you hold on something like abortion or something domestic tend to stay constant over, more constant over time. Views on foreign policy have more of a tendency to be able to shift. So I think personally, foreign policy is not inherently any more complex or difficult. A nuclear negotiation is not any more difficult or complex to understand than the debate about gun control, than the debate about abortion. The debate about what's going on in Syria is not any more fundamentally complex than a domestic political debate about healthcare. It's just a matter of being able to articulate it in a way that's accessible to people and for people to have an interest or to care. That's a part of the problem too. Right. You need to get people to care about those issues, to invest the time or energy or resources that they may invest in learning about domestic issues. But there's nothing more inherently complex about an Iran nuclear nuclear deal than there is about a baseball negotiation or than there is about a domestic negotiation happening on Capitol Hill, which, to be quite frank, might be more complicated <laughs> with the House and the Senate and right. all the committees. So, like, I don't personally think, and I'm not just saying that because I studied foreign policy, I don't personally think there's anything inherently more complex about it. So I always try to just speak to people about these issues in a way that I think is the easiest, most basic way for them to understand, because there's not something that's sort of more challenging or difficult about a lot of these problems. It's just that they might have more challenging and difficult answers to them, because there's not a silver bullet or you know one a one one thing that's going to fix right. these areas. Um, so I, I think being clear, I think writing for different types of outlets and forums, talking to different types of audience is helpful. Um, I spoke at a conference, you know, a couple months ago where a lot of the audience members were young, which was actually really helpful because you get sort of super smart questions, but sort of said in a very basic, uh, you know, this was like, we had some middle school, high school students, but it actually helps you put things into simpler terms. Um, and I think that's actually really helpful and important um, when you have a, a deeper foreign policy understanding behind it. Great. We've already talked about the, this new technology that's been developed. Um, Let's think a little bit into the future. Uh, this sounds like a great first step, but it's a first step. Uh, how can we inspire companies, people, organizations such as yours to, to be more innovative thinking, to, to look for solutions in regard to countering violence extremism? Because uh, there are programs that are in the process that are working, but again, like you said, there's no magic bullet. We, this needs to be a holistic approach. How do we think beyond the let's drop a bomb on the dude philosophy and moving on to engaging the tech community, engaging the government, engaging whatever new administration we're going to have, and keeping the American people engaged and moving forward in the 5, 10, 15-year range? So I think there's probably two responses to that question. And they're equally important. And I'd probably break it down into saying partnerships and people. And by partnerships, I mean the fact that we cannot afford to work in a siloed fashion. And I know that the government and the nonprofit sector and the technology companies have been working together. But personally, I think if there were sort of more formalized ways, more formalized um, sort of meetings, maybe even sort of a little, and, and the private sector may have its own reasons to be resistance to the, resistant to this because they want to be independent and they have their own motivations. Um, but more formalized ways to bring these three communities together and work in a more cohesive fashion 
creative, innovative ideas usually come from when you're meeting with people from different backgrounds and mindsets than yourself, whether that's bureaucratically, whether that's, you know, in terms of diversity, whether that's in terms of age. So the more that you can get these individuals working these issues at the White House, working these issues at Twitter, for example, and working these issues on the nonprofit think tank side, you're bound to come up with probably better, more creative and more innovative solutions. And then the second part of it is you need to get better talent into these offices. I don't mean better with the criticism to what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. you need to continue to get right. better talent and you, that needs to be a central focal point. So I think the private sector is very good at attracting talent and I, I've worked in the government, so this is not a criticism of the government, but a lot of you know individuals with certain computer science skills and technology skills are attracted to Silicon Valley for a variety of reasons or to you know different companies in DC that are on the private sector side. So creative ways to get better and by better, I just mean not losing them to the private sector. It's not a saying that the people that we have now aren't good, but to keep recruiting top-notch talent. At the end of the day, it's people that are solving these problems. So if you want to have more innovative solutions, you need to have the best and brightest people in the offices that are coming up with the solutions. Let me, let me let's ask you specifically about Orlando. Uh, this is We've only having had a week since the attacks took place when we're recording this. So there's not a ton of information out there beyond what we've had in the last several days. Um, but let's move beyond the gun debate here, because that's really what, what's been going on the last couple of days. Let's talk directly about the issue of radicalization and extremism, which is you know your bread and butter. And it appears that the gunman was radicalized online. I won't say his name, give him the credit that he does not deserve, uh, with no contact. And then, of course, there's the story that the FBI was, in fact, paying attention to him. But there's no clear evidence that he was planning on doing anything wrong. So let me ask you the question uh, on the law enforcement side. Should we make it against the law, or at least tweak the standard for probable cause to allow us to investigate much deeper than we have before people making statements sympathetic to ISIS or sympathetic to radicalism? So I get the nature of your question, and I guess I don't know that we so much need to tweak probable cause. I think the FBI, even if there had been probable cause in this case, they need more resources to do their job effectively. So for every individual like the shooter in the Orlando case who carried out the attack, there may have been, and I'm making up these numbers, but there are active FBI investigations in all, in, in all states, right. and, and the numbers are online. You know, James Comey has walked through the numbers of sort of how many open cases there are with some sort of ISIS sympathy. And at the end, at, at, when you look at the numbers and you look at FBI resources, there's no way that they'd be able to do the type of investigation that might be warranted in all right. these cases. And at some point, there has to be a threshold. So in this case, and I don't know enough detail about the two points of contact that the shooter in the Orlando case had with the FBI, but it, at, at some point, someone's not going to meet the threshold, and they can't get sort of a high-level investigation to the same degree that someone do, who's doing something more egregious. So I think it's more of a, re a resource question. I mean, in our country, we are innocent until proven guilty. And you know, every single statement that hits the FBI law enforcement screen is not going to be treated in the same fashion. It is troublesome to me um, the amount of times this individual was raising so many red flags to the FBI, to his family, disciplinary action that's coming out now in school, material on Facebook. There are also reports of suspicious behavior when he went to go purchase, you know, weaponry and, and armor. So mm -hmm. the troublesome part of this to me is, okay, Perhaps he didn't warn an FBI investigation, but maybe he would have if on other occasions more people had circled back to law enforcement, even in the weeks prior to the attack. Even his wife, for example, had some suspicions of her own, which is coming out now. So it's more 
the culmination of all of the red flags that in this case were missed taken together, that to me is, is the more troublesome part of this case. I mean, are, are we seeing a need for, and this might be outside of your, your realm, but are, are we seeing a need for more cooperation, much in the same way that the intelligence community was created in the mid 2000s uh, with the FBI working with NGOs, working with local law enforcement, working with the government to try to counter this violent extremism in a more holistic way on the ground level. Yeah, and I think they've been doing a lot of that. I mean, I think you said it at post 9-11, um, the whole nature of intelligence reform, the whole nature of basically essentially national security apparatus mm -hmm. reform was to create more interagency cooperation, was to create more joint terrorism, JTTF, joint terrorism task forces. And the idea of that is to have individuals embedded from different agencies working more closely together um, and then you have examples of sort of stellar counterterrorism efforts in a, in a city like New York, where they have sort of their own intelligence bureau, you know, within the, the NYPD focused on these issues. So I think there has been definitely a lot done. I think the bigger, it's not even the bigger problem, but one individual is extremely hard uh, to catch. Right. I mean, it's just a numbers game. I think, I, I'm not even remembering who said it yesterday in, in testimony, but it, it's a needle in the haystack. Um, and basically, if they're not communicating right. with people in a cell, if they're not communicating people with people overseas for operational planning, if they're not communicating with their family, if they're not communicating the plans to attack with anybody, there's really very little other than red flags being reported to law enforcement that law enforcement can catch. Right. I mean, it really seems like there's, there's one of two choices in this case, and that's the choice that you, your team has been making, the idea of preventing the extremism from happening, the radicalization from happening in the first place. Exactly. Or really fundamentally changing who we are as a country and just being, whether it's locking Muslims up or, I mean, that, that seems to be, uh, Michael Hayden very succinctly says that people make bad decisions when they're afraid. And, uh, and that unfortunately, I'd like to say that, that ISIS is desperate because they're falling behind so uh, so dramatically in the Middle East, but is this wishful thinking here in the United States? Yeah, and I, I would also add to that is that uh, this is credit to Republicans and Democrats through both administrations. While we've seen the horrific attack like Orlando, we have not seen a large-scale, coordinated, sophisticated attack planned by overseas. The United States has not seen such an attack, and that type of attack, I'd argue, is a lot more difficult, and we've probably been very good at preventing mm -hmm. Um, and the types of attacks we're seeing, while troublesome in their own right, we seem to be able to have that other problem, hopefully, more managed, because those are the plots that are easier to give away science to law enforcement, right. because they're larger in scale and more sophistication required, more purchasing of weaponry, more financial support. So there's no silver lining ever to any type of attack. Um, but I think that's why you've seen this shift now, because... It, it's been difficult to carry out those sort of large-scale attacks. I do think, unfortunately, what you're going to see and what law enforcement is more concerned about now is this sort of lone wolf uh, or small cell, domestically, homegrown, inspired. And by inspired, I don't even mean inspired because of direct communication. Inspired as in read some stuff, took on the ideas, mm -hmm. and then claimed it on behalf of a group overseas that the person's never met. But it, you know what? It doesn't really matter the level of connection because one person can kill an unprecedented amount of individuals in United States history in the largest mass shooting ever, right. having never met an ISIS affiliate, but just claiming the attack with some sympathies towards the group. And there might have been a host of other reasons the individual carried it out and motivations as well. But 
more as more information comes out, there was definitely some element of right. radicalization going on here as well. When I want to ask, when is this uh, algorithm that's been created to pull down this information? When will that go into effect? You know, so. Uh, there will be more information coming out in the press in the next few days and months. It's called Norex, and it's being uh, developed by uh, Hani Farid at Dartmouth College, Computer Science Department. You can read more about his work online and the counter-extremism project. Uh, the CEO, Ambassador Mark Wallace, has been working closely with Hani on the development of this technology. Uh, we just sort of publicly released this information to reporters at the time of this taping of this podcast. So in the, in the next uh, you know weeks and months, uh, there will be more information out on this, and I can send actually you a, a copy of the release if you want to link to it. Absolutely. With the podcast as well for more details. Um, but we expect that this, you know, it's being developed, so it actually is functional now, but it's, it, it can't work without the tech company's cooperation. So that question has multiple parts to right. it. It's right, you have the technology, there needs to be a process and, and the database, which is actually currently already underway in terms of the images and the development, but then it actually needs to be used by the tech companies to filter out the content. So that part, getting everyone on board and getting all the players to the table could take longer. Yeah. Um, but we see this as a, a perfect solution to one of the problems that's been at the heart of this debate about online extremism. Well, and they've lost their excuse of it's too hard to do and it's exactly. too difficult to exactly. do. Exactly. Well, thank you for taking the time. We'd also like to thank Blue Apron for joining the SpyCast family. Remember, get your two free meals by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.